When I talk about power, when I use the word power, what kinds of people do you think of? For some people, when you say the word power, maybe they think of someone who's very rich. I think the richest person right now, um, last time I checked anyway, was a businessman um, just outside of Mexico City he lives, and he has enough money that he could buy a country if he wanted to. It's like something like, per his personal wealth is estimated at $22 billion. That's like the gross national product of many reasonably sized countries. He could buy a country if he wanted to. Or when I say power, you might think of people that have sort of positional power, like maybe the Pope or a president or, or someone like that, right? Someone who, um, through, either through their hard work or, or, or um, you know, whatever their life has brought them to, they ended up in a, in a title or in a position of great power with, with many people either working for them or, or associated with them. You might even think of maybe the CEO of a, um, a, like a Fortune 500 company, maybe not personally so rich, but having the influence of such a large company working for them. Or you might even think of someone who simply has a lot of fame. Because um, often people with a lot of fame, a lot of newsworthiness, if you will, also wield a great deal of power in terms of fashion and what's going on in the world. I mean, um, we probably, we might laugh, but someone like uh, Brad Pitt and Jolina, and what is her name? <laughs> Angelina Jolie, that's it. I mean, they actually have a lot of, of sort of social power, if you will, right? They probably have more friends on Facebook than exist in the world. And there's a kind of power that goes along with that. Okay, I know, I I'm, I'm went from the sublime to the ridiculous maybe here. But what would you say if I told you that these kinds of power, positional power, power based on fame, power based on money, and that the acquisition, the, the, the headlong acquisition of these kinds of power actually are almost designed to make the people acquiring them and the people around them unhappy. We're using this book, we're just starting out with a new book, and this month it's The Art of Power by Thich Nhat Hanh, who is a Buddhist monk. And you might say, now what, what on earth, Larry? <laughs> Sometimes you have a screw loose, but a, but a Buddhist monk talking about power? And what's interesting about this book, what I love about this book, is he suggests that we've got power really all wrong. That our ideas of, uh, of, of trying to get power are almost by definition going to make us unhappy and probably take down a lot of people with us. And, and his uh, assumption or, or his, uh, really the thrust of the book is, true power should make people happy. True power and the use of it should make not only the person who is, is using it happy, but all of the people around her or him as well. It should be a tool for happiness. And what's the good of it if you're miserable anyway? What's, right? what's the use of the money? What's the use of the, you know, I don't know, the fame or, or whatever? What use are these tools if they're not to bring happiness? So let, let me start out here with just a short reading from this book. He says, in Buddhism, we simply see power differently from the way that most of the world views it. Buddhists are as concerned with power, certainly, as everyone else, 
But we are interested only in the kinds of power that bring happiness and avoid suffering. Usually people chase financial and political power. Many people believe if they attain these kinds of power, they can make themselves happy. But if you lack love, if you lack love, even if you have the money, the fame, and the power, you cannot truly be happy. And so the synthesis of this book, the, the, really the main point is, it's not so much the tool that you use, although we're going to be talking about that too in a minute. If you will, it's the basis for it. And he suggests that, yes, you can have the money, you can have the fame, you can have all of those things, and if, and if they're based on love and not the mere acquisition of power, right, that then you can be successful with them. So he's not here to say that people have a lot of money or doomed to unhappiness or, or, or anything like that, but he's saying if that is your main thrust, the acquisition of these things, and not love at all, then happiness will ever be elusive to you. Okay, so in the book, um, the first chapter is wonderful, and he spends a little bit of time kind of firebombing, if you will, our, our initial ideas of what power is right now. And he says there are five, time, uh, five kinds of inauthentic or false power, and there are five kinds of authentic or real power, power that will bring us happiness. And so I want to talk uh, just for a minute about the five... Uh, false kinds of powers. And in fact, he even calls them the five cravings. Okay? So they are <laughs> wealth, fame, sex, fancy food, and lots of sleep. <laughs> I know. Now, okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. It's good. All right. I, it's okay. I have a little bit of an explanation here. The, the first couple of them, I think, intuitively make a little sense. If it is wealth, simply for wealth's sake that we crave and we go after. It makes sense, right? People may get hurt in the process. And once we acquire the wealth, there's no guarantee that we're happy. So that absolutely, I think, makes sense to me. And the fame one does a little bit too. Was it Andy Warhol that said in the, in the 21st century, everyone will have their 10 minutes of fame? And the trouble with that is then the 10 minutes is over, right? And so, so those people in f famous may exert some power now, but, but you know, I've got to tell you, when Brad Pitt is 70, it won't be that exciting. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? The people that have their fame because of their title or, or because of what they're doing in the movies or in politics or whatever, their time in the sun is a short period of time, and then most of them move on. And if they're basing their own happiness, if they're basing their own esteem and self-worth on outsiders, on what the world thinks of them, this is not happy-making. But what about the last three, which I personally enjoy? Sex, fancy food, and lots of sleep. Um, well, let's, you know, let's, let's be real here. What I think is interesting is Thich Nhat Hanh isn't saying that these things are bad. What he is saying is that the cravings for them are not useful. 
He's saying that if it is our intent to be more powerful by using them as tools, if we can begin spending a great deal of our time in, in finding sex and fancy food and lots of sleep, that we are going to be missing the point of our lives. It's not that they're bad. And as you'll discover when we start talking about the forms of authentic power, in fact, what he would say is, when you're exercising your authentic power, you don't even need to worry about those other things because they will come to you in the due course of a, of a generous and easygoing supply of them, whether it be money or fame or sex or, or, whatever, or fancy food, that those things, when you're uh, really focused on true and authentic power, you don't need to seek them. They just follow you. They come to you as needed. So let's move on to then what the five forms of authentic power are. The first one, he says, is faith and confidence. It is knowing what you know that you know. It is that inner confidence in knowing and not getting this from outsiders, right? This isn't about fame where you can only know about yourself by what other people say. This is the confidence that lives right in your heart. When we cultivate our own confidence, when we have faith in ourself and our connection to God, when we know that the full force of infinite God is behind us and we have the confidence of that, when we know that our choices are good, when we know that our, our power is secure and right here, it's like we're invincible. It's like the entire universe is for us and nothing can be against us. That, he said, is the primary source of true power. And he uses the example of, uh, uh, of Jesus of Nazareth. He said, point to a place in the Bible where Jesus isn't confident, Right? When Jesus goes to feed the multitudes, he doesn't take the, the one loaf of bread and the one fish and says, oh gosh, I really hope this is going to work, <laughs> right? When, when he's healing the, uh, the leper or, or giving sight to the blind person, he, he isn't like going, wow, you know, this worked that one time. I'm really, you know, <laughs> right? No, there is complete confidence that he knows what he knows, that he knows. The truth cannot be besmirched or diminished. Okay, number two, diligence. Now here is one that is kind of curious because we don't really think so much of diligence, I don't think. Diligence is going the extra mile. Diligence is, uh, what do they say, having your nose to the grindstone? Not in the sense of having to work hard, but to be very consistent to, to really day in and day out do what is necessary to further our goals. And this is one of the true forms of power according to the Buddhist tradition. What it means is not only do you know what you know that you know, but you're going to keep acting on it day in and day out. Even if um, messages to the contrary are coming your way, you're going to go, no, the truth of me is love, and here's some more love in the world. The truth of me is honesty, and here's some more honesty in the world. It is keeping up. It is persisting. It is that diligence in not only knowing what we know, but then putting it into action in the world. Even when the going is rough, even when our friends and family are giving us uh, interesting messages to the contrary, we are here to say 
that there is truth in me, there is love in me, there is joy in me, and I'm going to be diligent in my practice of it. The next one is mindfulness, and, uh, and Thich Nhat Hanh does a kind of a funny thing in the book. Um, he really zeroes in, I think, on Americans, and he says the trouble with Americans, now, now of course he lives in America, don't get me wrong, but he says the trouble with Americans is we spend nearly half of our time living in the past and nearly the other half of our time living in the future. And he said traditionally power has been about trying to build the future to be ever bigger and greater, to get more money in the future, to get more um, uh, fame in the future, right? To, to plan for the fancy food in the future, right? It, it, we spend a lot of our time in future thinking or rehashing the past. And what he says about this is that we can only make a difference in the now, we can only make legitimate choices now. We can only interact with people in a loving and beautiful way now. It, it provides us nothing to go back in time and replay some old tape of when something went wrong. We can't change what happened in the past. Nor, he says, is it wise for us to spend too much time planning for the future. Who knows how the future's going to turn out? I had a boss that worked for... 35 years at the telephone company. He was a senior manager and he could have retired after 25 years. He worked for 35 years and a week after he retired, he died. Is this the kind of thing we want to do, thinking of the future? I don't think so. So your authentic power is your ability to recognize what's going on right now, to be in tune with the people and the places and the things going on right now, and to find the good in it, to put your love in it, to do that diligent work, right? Around knowing the truth of you and the others around you as the light and the joy and the peace and the fun of God. And you can only do it now. You can't do it then, and, you know, you're apt to be thwarted if you think of your plans for the future. You know, well, I'm going to wait until the kids are in college. I'm going to wait until the mortgage is paid off. I'm, you know, I'm going to wait till I can go back to school and finally learn how to... Do you know what I mean? If you wait, it may or may not happen. What I know is you can make things happen now. You can bring your full effort of love and joy and peace, but only now. The next one is interesting. My hero in this one is Ernest Holmes. And the next authentic power is concentration. Now, every Sunday, either Nancy or, or um, Reverend Sharon get up here and tell you, you can change your entire world as long as you change your mind. That's concentrating. If you cannot hold a pattern of goodness in your mind and in your heart, right? We call it a mental equivalent. For those who have taken the foundations class or some of our other classes, we call it having a mental equivalent, being able to have concentrated in our mind a picture of how we want life to be, full of love, full of joy, having the, the job that we love and the relationship that's great for us, having loving and harmonious families and children and having a, you know, the house that, that suits us and all of those kinds of things and forming a mental picture so that nothing shakes it. And that is concentration. 
wouldn't it have been wonderful in high school if they would have taught us concentration? I got to tell you, I have never once used that formula with the right angled triangles in order to figure out how much cement to buy in a patio. But what I would have used was information on how to hold a mental equivalent in my head. Last but not least, and this one Thich Nhat Hanh says, you can only get this last one, you can only start out on it once you've mastered to some degree the other four. And he calls it insight, the final power truly on the planet for good, for love, based in love, is our insight. That's the real gift, the real power that we can give others. And it only happens when we have the confidence, when we have the diligence, the mindfulness, and the concentration. He says, and when you have those things, your insight, your wisdom, your clarity, your sense of what needs to happen will be miraculous. And this is our true power. This is knowing how to be in the right place at the right time and doing the right thing so that you and others are happy, are joyous, are content, are living the lives we want to live. And this doesn't happen through the acquisition of money. It doesn't happen through uh, you know, getting the right job or having the right numbers of shares of stock. It doesn't happen by getting the perfect recipe or, or, uh, or on, on your bad days just sleeping all day, the getting lots of sleep one. It happens through exercising these mental tools. Okay, and if you hadn't noticed... That's the other big difference between the false power and the authentic power. The false power is based on stuff. All of them are effects. In terms of science of mind, we say there's the cause, the mental cause of things, and then there's the physical effect. And what we know is if we spend our lives chasing after an effect, if we spend our lives chasing after stuff, and goods and experiences, there will come a time when that stuff and those goods and those experiences go south. And how do our lives work then? Suddenly we're the emperor with no clothes. Instead, instead, Thich Nhat Hanh says, you go with the mental forms of power. You go with faith and confidence. You go with diligence. You go with mindfulness and concentration and insight. These are creations that can stay with you your entire life once you learn them, once you acquire them, once you practice them. No one can take them away from you. And they are a cause. When you put them to work, you are not at the mercy of what the market is doing or, or what your age is or any of those other things that can influence the stuff. When you put your mental powers, when you put the power of your mind to work for you using these methods of authentic power, then there can be no stopping with you and it lasts for a lifetime. And when it's done from the premise of love, it will bring you and the people around you only happiness. 
Okay, so I had a, a really fancy um, example um, out of the book that I was going to use on how to actually then wield or use these powers, but uh, so many people had asked how my, how my vacation was in Disney World that I actually, uh, but I'm going to do both, don't worry. So I want to tell you a story that just really occurred to me this morning uh, as I was on my way to church. It is one of the best uses of authentic power I've ever heard, and it happened at Disney World, so how good was that? So we're at Disney World for the last week, and it's lovely, but it is wicked hot. I mean, for a native Oregonian anyway, 95 is wicked hot. And although they tell you it's a wet heat, somehow that didn't make it feel any better. So we're, you know, we're in cutoffs, but we're still miserable. But we did discover in Frontierland, of all places, that the uh, Thunder Mountain, big, no, Big Thunder Mountain Railroad ride, not only because the ride is like outdoors and it's a roller coaster, you cool off, right, because you're moving fast, but the actual waiting in line is almost overly air-conditioned. So we'd done that ride like eight times, and my... <laughs> Well, you know, you do, you do what you have to do. And, uh, but, but my partner Daniel at the end of about number eight said, I think I got to go sit down for a while now. And I was kind of there with him. So we noticed there was a little, uh, like a, front, a fake frontier cafe, if you will, not too far from that. So we get in there and we're in line to get some burgers and some Cokes and, and some French fries. And I realized after standing in line for about 10 minutes that there were 200 people in here. They were all hot. They were all tired. They all wanted their food now. And of course, the, back to Americans again. How long should French fries and a hamburger take? It should only take the time between driving between window number one where you pay and window number two where you pick it up, right? So people were like, where are the fries? And we hear this little voice from the back of the, of the fry station saying, the fryer's down. <laughs> And I got to tell you, that room turned like that, and it wasn't pretty. There were people that were going to cause pain standing in those lines. And I, I really thought, you know, like, what's going to happen? We're at the front of the line, and, and most people have already paid. They're not going to go away, right? Happy, right? What's going to happen? And I really thought, you know, maybe we should like sneak out because I just don't, you know, this is supposed to be the happiest place on life. And I, I you know, I don't, I don't want to be a witness to the carnage. But the most marvelous thing happened. There was a, a kind of a, a stout woman there, about five foot one behind the counter, very diminutive, and she kind of looked like one of those people that you would imagine coming from the old country, kind of take charge, you know, uh, probably in her 60s. And, and the poor thing, she's wearing this total, they make you wear these outfits, so she's in this frontier thing with a heavy, so she's like probably way hotter than we are. And at first, because people are saying unkind things, you can see her really getting pissed off. You just see it in her face, and it's not pretty. She suddenly, it's though, as though a light bulb came on. And she kind of lifted her head a little bit. She got a chair. She stood up on a chair. Then she stood up on the counter. And she began to sing to us. <laughs> now, she is not a singer. <laughs> <laughs> but it was so engaging. 
it was so totally engaging and heartwarming. And she made up a little song. She was like, it's a million degrees and the deep fryer's down and everyone's pressing. You know what I mean? And we all started laughing. We laughed and we laughed. And it was though, in another instant, the room turned into a place full of love and full of joy. And I don't know whether it was the shift in the energy or if she was praying for all she was worth, but then the fries started coming out. The machine was working again as well. She exhibited this form of absolute and perfect and true power. She had complete faith and confidence in herself, even though she was by no means a singer. She had the diligence to get up on the chair. I mean, she did this. She followed through. And perhaps more than anything else, the two things she exhibited were, were mindfulness. She knew exactly what was going on in the room. She knew what people wanted and needed. And she had that inspiration, that insight to know that by doing something silly, she could save the day. Everyone, including her, was happy in that moment. We went from nearly 100% of us being angry to happy in like four bars of her funny song. (laughs) This is power. So I'd like to close today with another quote from this book, and uh, then we'll do a prayer. It is possible to succeed in your profession, to have worldly power, and to be content, and uh, and to be content at the same time. Um, In the time of the Buddha, there was a powerful and kind businessman named Anatha Pikandika. He was a disciple of the Buddha who always tried to understand his employees, his customers, his family, and friends. Because of his generosity, his workers saved him many times. When his business went bankrupt, he didn't suffer because his friends and workers and colleagues pitched in to help him quickly rebuild his business. He was the best boss they had ever had. He was happy not because of his wealth, not because of his fame, but because of his love. He allowed love to be the motivation, the force that pushed him forward. He had time and took time for his wife, his children, and his community. He had time for his spiritual practices. He knew how to love and take care of himself and his family, how to love and care for the people that mattered to him. And to me, what most of us call the bottom line is love. If we crave power and fame, we cannot be happy. He was a businessman out of love. Love was his foundation. And this is why he and his family and the people around him were happy. Let us pray. There is one power and one presence in this universe. It is this thing that I call love. And love as God, no matter what you call it, is that effervescence of life. It is what keeps the planets in motion. It is the the love that that gets uh, overly hot people on counters to sing. It is the love that allows each of us to approach our friends and our family with exactly the right time and exactly the right thing to say and do and make great choices. This is love. 
And through it, I know authentic power is born in God as well. And I know this is true in general. I know it's true for me. And I accept it and know it as truth for each person in this room, that each person here has a willingness this day and each day forward to understand a little bit more about themselves and how they may go about a path of authentic power. I know that each person here has greater faith and confidence in themselves and a willingness to be diligent in their affairs, that there is mindfulness in the present moment, that people are always aware of what's going on around them and able to concentrate on the life that they truly choose. And finally, for the people in this room, on this day, I know great insight. I know that the abilities of transforming their world through authentic power give them insight that make the world a better place, full of love, full of offerings of themselves to humanity. And so I'm grateful for this awareness. I'm grateful in advance for seeing this community grow in authentic power. I just let it be, and so it is. Thank you very much. Thanks for being here today. Thank you.